Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Peter Gillen, managing member of Ellie Mae Minerals, who's been active in the real estate space over the last 20 years and has specialized in the mobile park home asset class over the last decade. During the episode, Peter dives into great detail on the mobile park home asset class for any of those in the mineral space who may be interested in diversifying into this particular type of real estate. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Peter had to say. Peter, good morning and welcome on to the podcast. Uh, looking forward to an interesting and, and a different conversation. I think there's going to be a lot of value here for all the listeners, especially those in real estate. Hey, Tim, nice to chat with you. And thanks again for the great content you uh, do on your podcast. I've learned a great deal. And I know also you hold a number of events throughout the year and those I've gotten to attend one and it was a ton of fun. No, you bet. So we got to know each other early last year, 2022, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. Called me up and you said, hey, Tim, you don't know me, but I'm a real estate guy from California and I want to get in the mineral space. I came across your podcast. Can you let me pick your brain for a little bit? And we've developed a bit of a friendship since then. Good to know not everyone in California hates oil and gas. So there's there's more of you out there, hopefully, especially on the investment side. But you've since gotten into minerals. You started a little shop called Ellie Mae Minerals. We'll get into that in a bit. But the impetus of this conversation is really going to be around your background in real estate and in particular, uh, mobile home parks. You've started to meet others in the space, others that do real estate in conjunction with oil and gas. And there's been some interest in this. So you want to really kind of give a, a mobile home parks one-on-one breakdown here and some of the parallels and you know contrasts you see from what you're doing now in minerals and just see where the conversation goes. So I, again, I appreciate you coming on. A little background for yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? I, I'm assuming you went straight into real estate. Just let's paint some context on who you are professionally, individually, and then we'll jump into the broader conversation. My name's Peter Gillen, and basically I'm a native Californian, and I grew up in sunny San Diego, went to the only University of California school that would take me, UC Santa Cruz. And for those of you, I assume many of the readers are in Texas, that is definitely not a hotbed of uh, the oil and gas industry. They're definitely anti-fossil fuels. But I studied there, studied economics, really enjoyed economics. And then a year later, took some business classes at University of California, Berkeley. I was brought up by A students. Uh, my parents are both college professors. However, I was maybe a, a B student on a good day. So that's how I ended up in real estate. I've been in real estate now for 20 years. It's been a blast. As we speak, I'm a commercial real estate broker in Southern California, and I specialize in small, privately owned apartment buildings. So a bit of my background, I lived through the global financial crisis with young kids, had just bought my first house. And coming out of the global financial crisis about 10 years ago, I had it in my mind that I wanted to start buying some properties. And many of your listeners may be familiar with commercial real estate, being a broker, you close a deal and you're unemployed the next day. So I wanted to start building some reoccurring income. So I knew mobile home parks were an overlooked asset class. And at the time, they were probably the only commercial real estate asset I could afford. 
and going back to the global financial crisis, it was a very difficult four years in Southern California. There were a lot of REOs, slow transaction activity, things like that. So I wanted to look in a geographic area that was very stable. So I focused on the Midwest and I wanted an economic base that was, you know, not up and down. And I settled upon Nebraska. Nebraska is kind of to the cattle and beef industry, what Texas is to the oil and gas industry, but it's very stable. Texas probably has more ups and downs. Nebraska is pretty stable. So long story short, I was able to find a attractive mobile home park in a little town called Lexington, Nebraska. And Lexington is a town of maybe 11,000 people. If you were to zoom out of, of a map of the United States, it is literally right smack dab in the middle of the United States. Uh, right on Interstate 80. And the main economic driver there is a Tyson Foods plant. They bring in a cow and a hamburger comes out type of thing. So, um, but it's a very stable town economically. So starting off, you had asked me kind of my first impressions of flying to the Midwest. You know, I haven't heard this story firsthand, but you sent me some notes on it. This is analogous to the Kitchen Table War Stories segment we have on the podcast. So I'm to set the table for everyone, you know, we're going to start with a fun story here. So your first deal in Nebraska, walk us through it. Okay, so obviously there's not there are not major airlines that fly to Lexington, Nebraska, but there's a little town called Kearney, Nebraska. Maybe it's got 40,000, 50,000 people. So you get on in Denver on your and you're in this very small airplane. I don't even know if the pilot has, there's an actual cockpit, but it's a very small airplane. I get off and it's very flat, very green and very humid. And I have a buddy from Denver who owns a mobile home park in another town nearby, like an hour there. And he says, okay, I'll meet you. I'll pick you up at the airport. So he picks me up at the airport. We get in his car and he said, well, hold on, let me just, you know, stop at the 7-Eleven, got to get some drinks or whatever. So we walk in before he walks into the 7-Eleven, he takes out his wallet, keys, and cell phone, puts them on the dashboard of his car, then walks in and gets his drinks. And then we come back out. And I go, that just mental note of things that would never happen in Southern California, because that car would be, you know, in a different time zone if you ever did that. Yeah, I'm from New York. You, you wouldn't do that. No, for sure. Yeah, you would not do that. <laughs> so anyway, so we get to this park, we're walking around. And as I mentioned, the town... The main employer is a Tyson food plant, which smells as good as you would probably imagine. And we're walking around the property and the wind is blowing. It starts blowing in the wrong direction. And I turned to my buddy, Jim, and I said, man, that smells like shit. And he looks around the property and goes, no, that smells like money. <laughs> so the point is, you know, sometimes good opportunities come with don't judge a book by its cover, I guess you could say. And his point was, hey, this is a really attractive investment. It may not be the most beautiful, not Beverly Hills, but it's a good money-making opportunity. So fast forward a few months, I buy this property with help from a local bank. And I returned to California. And I have hired a, a young person, a young woman who lives in the park to be the resident manager. And I've owned this thing a month. And this person is not returning my phone calls. and. I'm getting a little bit concerned. And finally, one of her family members said, well, hey, uh, Peter, there was a death in the family. And, you know, my sister had to leave town and attend to the family. And that just does not pass the smell test. So, Tim, I 
Googled the name of the property and the name of this individual who shall remain nameless. And it turns out there was a stabbing in the park. And as luck would have it, my manager was the one doing the stabbing. Oh, man. <laughs> so she, so uh, she, she was visiting family in jail then. <laughs> yeah, she. there was a reason she did not return my phone calls for a while. So anyway, so yeah, that's kind of one of my first stories, trial by fire in the mobile home park industry. But I would just say, despite the sometimes Jerry Springer reputation of our industry, stories like that have been few and far between. I've been more pleasantly surprised than unpleasantly surprised. In general, the, the residents I have and the people I get to work with have been really hardworking, really honorable people. And they're like anybody else. They want to raise their kids and live in a peaceful environment with neighbors they like and go to work and make the best of their lives. And one of my goals is to help them do that. Have you ever found yourself wandering the halls of NAEP, feeling lost in the sea of booths and attendees, and thinking to yourself, where the hell are all the minerals and non-op executives? Well, my friends, worry no more. On February 8th, NAEP will be launching their inaugural Minerals and Non-op Hub, which will serve as a dedicated and central location for minerals and non-op executives to network and show deals. For more information, please Google NAEP Minerals and Non-op Hub or email exhibit at napexpo.com. No, I appreciate the little background and, and the humor there, but taking a step back, I mean, as a, would you define it as an asset class or a sector of real estate? Break down what mobile home parks are and you know how, all the nuts and bolts of it. I mean, my uneducated assumption is it, you're buying essentially a plot of land that has the ability to connect electricity and you know, sewage and, and all that. And then people come and pay rent for the spots. I, I really have no idea. So once you start kind of the, the very basics here and then, and then break out the different components and factors of play. Great. That's an excellent question. So in its simplest form, a mobile home park is what you refer to as a land leased community. And if you and I were standing in a mobile home park, Tim, you would see roads, you would see parking spots, and then you would see a mobile home. And the mobile home is what you call personal property that's owned by the resident of the park. And the the roads, the parking pads, lighting fixtures, all that, the infrastructure, the water lines, that's all owned by the mobile home park. And its simplest form, it's a mobile home park is a community in which the landlord owns the real estate. And the owner of the home owns the personal property and pays rent to the owner of the mobile home park. So my, and again, in its simplest form, I don't own mobile homes. I just own the land and the residents of the mobile home or the owner of the home pays me rent. And I just want to double click to emphasize that there's some things that people might associate with a mobile home park, which are not. So a lot of people have rented an RV or own an RV and have traveled around the country staying in an RV park. That's kind of a different animal. That's not what I'm talking about. Oh, so that's what I thought it was. It's not an RV park situation. Yeah, so that they could be, but in general, um, RV parks, people stay maybe a month, maybe they stay a few weeks. I'm sure people who are in the oil and gas industry have had employees or maybe themselves have stayed in RV parks when they're out on a well or, you know, visiting a new area or something like that. But those RVs are pulled behind a trailer and can be moved within a matter of an hour and 
parked in your driveway or parked in a, a new mobile home park when they move on to the next, pro- next project. Um, that's not my business. These mobile homes that I own are actually attached to the ground. And the attractiveness of the business is once a mobile home is attached to the ground, Tim, it's very expensive to move that mobile home to a new location. Realistically, it's five or $10,000 and it's a great, it's a big hassle. So the attractiveness as an investment is once you have a mobile home on a lot, you have an annuity. I mean, it's that mobile home is with a few exceptions going to continue to pay rent for a long term. So let me just finish up my thought about what a mobile home park is not. Also, since we're talking to some people in the oil and gas industry, many people are familiar with with man camps. I'm sure you've seen man camps like in out in the Permian or in uh, North Dakota or something like that. That's not my business plan. Those are actually modular housing that are put together like Legos. And you might have a bunch of dorm rooms with a cafeteria attached or something like that. That's not my business plan. And finally, you know, there was just because this occurred recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a luxury mobile home park, I think, in the city of Malibu, north of L.A., where there are mobile homes that sell for $5 million or something like that because they're literally located right on this beautiful secluded beach. That's not my business plan. What we're talking about is typically a mobile home park that was built in the 70s, It's got 100 lots. It's located in a small farm town in the Midwest and the residents of this property, you know, are typically blue collar. They work at, you know, Walmart, they drive trucks, they're contractors, they're teachers, they're nurses, they're young families. And just a bit of demographics about mobile home parks, then we can actually talk about them as investments. There are about 50,000 mobile home parks in the U.S., and about 6% of the U.S. population lives in mobile home parks currently. But you might say, well, 6%, they're not that important. But there's a large percentage of the population that has total household income of less than $50,000 a year. And mobile home parks provide a disproportionate percentage of the housing stock for that population. So all that is to say, they're a very important and I'm biased, but I would say they provide a very attractive housing option because Tim, if you've got a, a young family living in a mobile home park and they own their own home, their only cost for housing is lot rent, which might be $400 or $500. And then they've got utilities. So at the end of the day, it's five or $600 compared to an apartment that would be twice that. So they provide a very, very essential portion of this nation's affordable housing stock. So obviously I'm biased, but I'm I'm a strong advocate for mobile home parks to be continue to provide the affordable housing that they provide. No, that's that's great. And is it mostly because of blue collar nature of tenants in rural type areas, or can you find these in the outskirts of most cities? Yeah. So there's all the above. And I have focused on mobile home parks that have typically been outside of the city limits. Maybe they were built 40 or 50 years ago. And at the time the property was built, the mobile home park was kind of on the outset outskirts of town. And then over the next few decades, the town has grown up around it. And what's been a problem is that when some of these properties were built, they were built on land outside of town that was not very valuable. 
And then fast forward 30 years, the town's grown up and the mobile home park sits on very, very valuable land. And it's occupied by blue collar people who don't necessarily have a strong political advocate. And then on the other hand, because the land is so valuable, there are a lot of real estate developers who do have, you know, who are politically influential and they go to the city council and say, hey, you know, Tim, we should convert that. Let's destroy that mobile home park and build up, you know, upscale condo or, you know, an office park or single sure. family homes or something like that. So all that is to say there aren't new, there are very, very few new mobile home parks being built. And um, either through attrition or through the re redevelopment process, there are a few mobile home parks that get redeveloped each year. Like every year you read about, you know, mobile home parks in a growing city like Bozeman, Montana or Phoenix or something where, as I just mentioned, the mobile home park gets redeveloped and torn, turned into a, you know, a upscale apartment building or something like that. But that's not my business. And most of what I own would not be a candidate for that. And then you mentioned as an example, 100, 100 units or 100 renters. Is that a typical size? I mean, is it vary quite a bit or is it pretty standardized when you're looking at them now we're going to start transitioning into mobile home parks as a an investment opportunity and how the returns are and how it compares to other real estate etc cetera, etc cetera. but why don't you start by answering that on size and then we'll get into really broader context within real estate yeah sure so let me just back up it might be helpful to talk about kind of the general background of mobile sure. home parks, let's call it the last 10 years. Sure. So if we were to go back 10 years and I were having it, were to have a conversation with a number of my friends in real estate and say, hey, you know, I'm behind this mobile home park, they would look at me like I'm crazy. At the time, 20 or 30 years ago, or even 10 years ago, mobile home parks were definitely, I would say, an overlooked asset class. They were not, they did not have a lot of brand cachet, there was kind of negative connotations that we just discussed associated with mobile home parks. I noticed that starting to change the last five years. And then it really accelerated since COVID. And I think, again, 10 years ago, people, it was just not common for large institutional investors to own mobile home parks. There were not pension funds. There were a few REITs. There were not a lot of family offices that owned mobile home parks. That, and again, that started to change about five years ago and really accelerated, you know, post-COVID. And I think the reason for that is there was a widespread recognition that there's a shortage of affordable housing. So again, that started to change. And the investment landscape for mobile home parks has really, they've just come to be accepted as popular investments. Their popularity has really grown. So now Blackstone Group owns mobile home parks. A number of the publicly traded real estate investment trusts own real uh, mobile home parks, and they've done really well. So just all that is to say they've become a lot more popular. And then another big innovation or big change in the industry has to do with lending. Because they didn't, they were associated kind of with Jerry Springer and all that. A lot of the large institutional lenders, Wells Fargo and then Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, would not lend on mobile home parks until recently. And then they've come to realize, hey, these are 
just like apartment buildings, they're probably even a little more stable. They have lower operating costs. So a lot of larger lenders have started investing in mobile, I'm sorry, lending on mobile home parks. So 10 years ago, my only option for a loan would be like a local bank. Now there are CMBS lenders, there are life companies, Fannie and Freddie are very active with mobile home parks. So that's allowed mobile home park owners like myself to access much more attractive financing, particularly like long-term fixed rate financing that's non-recourse. So that's that's been really good. And then the final thing I would add is that typically, let me just speak to the mobile home side of the business. The mobile home side of the business saw themselves as a Lexus. They needed to make a Toyota. They built an Acura and they should have bought, built a Honda Accord, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They built a mobile home par- a mobile home for many years that essentially had granite countertops that cost a hundred thousand bucks. And they just didn't want to face the reality that, hey, our customer makes $50,000 a year. They don't need all the bells and whistles. They did not want to build a simple, affordable home. They wanted to build a $100,000 mobile home that's going to reside in a fancy park in Florida. That started to change. In 2002, Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway, bought a company called uh, Clayton Homes out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And they've really ramped up production and they've started building just good, solid, affordable homes. And then that accelerated like 10 years ago because there's all these, there's a lot of demand actually from the oil and gas industry. Hey, we need housing. We need it cheap, cheaply and quickly. How quickly can you build, you know, 50 homes and have them delivered to Midland? Mobile homes are a great option. So all that is to say, mobile, the mobile home started the business has really, there's a lot more options, they're a lot more affordable, and it's made it much easier to operate mobile home parks because if I have an older mobile home park, some of the homes are old or I've got some vacancy, I can now order fact, homes from a factory. I can get them in 90 days, relatively affordable. I don't want to say completely, but they're more affordable than they were let's call it 10 years ago. So that's just a bit of the background. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 120 deals, totaling 110 million in value, with deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, permit, duck, PDP, AFE, or Wellbore-only deals, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source deal flow from the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. 
Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Does your team ever struggle with employee turnover? What about right-sizing your team to fit your company's needs over time? Do you have the right accounting systems and software in place to maintain control and visibility on all your cost centers? If any of these things are challenges in your business, then Opportune's back office outsourcing could be the right solution. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. That, that's interesting. You know, what I'm curious to learn about, you said institutional capital start to come into the space. Clearly, you've highlighted there's been a change around sentiment and optics, if you may, on, on the asset class. Correct. Minerals. Yeah. Institutional capital started to come in around 2013, 14. That's when I started to really follow the space. Scale was one of the challenges or, or one of the barriers to entry before that. And you started to get folks aggregating minerals into larger portfolios. So they became, quote unquote, investable for someone who wants to put 50, 100 plus million dollars to work. Is this kind of post COVID growth a contributor to institutional capital coming in because there's more opportunity to put money to work at scale? Or do you think it's just a combination of everything and it's just a good a good investment product um, and they've gotten good returns on it? Yeah, all the, that's a great question. And I would say one of the big factors is obviously interest rates have been very, very low. Mm. So if you're a pension fund or even a private individual, and you'd like to retire one day or, you know, put some money to work. You start off with product types that you might be very familiar with. Let's call it an apartment building. Well, apartment buildings were very well priced, you know, in 2016, 2017, somewhere around that time. So you start from, start to look for alternatives. The first couple options that might have been overlooked assets, self-storage, mobile home parks. They were just, as we've already discussed, Pretty overlooked. There wasn't a lot of institutional ownership. It's very fragmented. A lot of the owners were people who built them or um, inherited them from their parents. So it was, I guess, yeah, you could just say it was a, it was very fragmented. So I think that started to get on people's radar. And then it turns out, as a business, I would argue there's probably nothing more stable as an asset than a stabilized mobile home park because mobile homes, they're fixed to the ground. They do not move. And for reasons I can describe, the cash flow is very stable. If you're looking for a hedge against inflation, typically you can raise lot rents in a mobile home park You know, around inflation, just below inflation. Obviously, the last few years, inflation has been much more elevated and you have to be sensitive about that with your tenant base. But at the, at the same time, they do provide a really attractive hedge against inflation. Interesting. Talk about the investment market a little bit and how you know it's looked and how it looks before. You're talking about the attractiveness of it as a hedge on inflation. I mean, what kind of returns are you looking at uh, as an investor and in, to these types of properties? Let me just preface this, my statements by saying in the last year, things have changed. You know, a year ago, the tenure was 
I, I, I don't recall specifically what it was, but it was much, much lower. Today, it's at, what, 3.5%, 3.6%. The Fed has been very aggressive in raising interest rates. So the market has obviously changed. But going back a year ago, I was given the opportunity to buy some very attractive, stabilized mobile home parks in Des Moines, Iowa, for around a 4% cap rate. And for folks who are not in the real estate business, a cap rate just refers to the all cash yield on an investment property. So if you if a property um, has, let's call it $500,000 of income and your operating expenses, uh, uh, salaries, insurance, utilities, repairs are $200,000. And so you have $300,000 left over. That's your net operating income. That's your cash flow before you pay debt. Um, and you divide that by the purchase price. So a property like that, you know, $300,000, again, a very high quality property a year ago would would have sold for, you know, $7 million, $8 million, something like that. So all that is to say, it was a very low return environment. Fast forward to today, 12 or 14 months later, cap rates have come up because nobody buys properties like that all cash. The interest rates have come up from you know four percent high threes to let's call it low sixes. So obviously the yield investors are demanding has come up substantially. So fast forward to today, I'm offered it's it's an apples to oranges comparison. Tim, decent bread and butter mobile home parks are going for seven percent yields, all cash. So they're still attractive, but you know pricing's less aggressive than it was a year ago. Got it. Got it. And then, you know, kind of drawing some parallels to minerals here. Minerals are a passive investment. There is some, you know, you mentioned insurance, utilities, you got to hire management. Your first investment, the the manager of the property stabbed someone and went to jail. How has the, the experience been uh, investing in these? Uh, has it been smooth sailing? Is it really, once you kind of learn the nuts and the bolts of it, pretty simple, break all that down. If someone's, if this is a an interesting opportunity as an asset class, and someone wants to look into it, what are they going to get themselves into? What what the, what do they need to? A lot of folks always say, "I, I want to figure out where the landmines are, so I don't step on it by accident." Right. Right. Let me attempt to address the differences between being a minerals owner and owning a mobile home park. Sure. So first of all, you could hypothetically own minerals your entire life, your grandparents could own them and your parents could own them. You could never encounter a, a jib or a AFE or anything like that. You can be completely passive. You know, these minerals hypothetically could be passed down from generation to generation. You could be a completely passive investor. At some point, you may have to sign a lease or negotiate a lease or something like that, but you can be completely passive. If you own mobile home parks, you are especially in the beginning, especially for your first 24 months, if you're buying what I buy, which is an older dated mobile home park, you are an operator. And I want to emphasize that clearly. I want to dispel, at least in my experience, Tim, these are not passive investment vehicles. If you are essentially the sponsor or you know, you're the, you're the operator, this is a hands-on, roll up your sleeves, dirt under your fingernails type of business. And I don't want to scare anybody off, but I want people to have appropriate expectations. That's the bad news. The good news is all of the things I've just described, they're really fun and they're really 
it generally, it's a really enjoyable process. One of the things that's really rewarding for me is a mobile home park is a small city. And these, this is a small city or a small town where people are going to raise their kids and, or somebody's going to retire or, you know, it's a community and I get to play a small part in building a community and improving the lives of kids who I, I would argue maybe have been overlooked by society uh, or come from difficult circumstances. I can't completely do everything to improve their life, but I can do my best to create a safe, affordable place for them to live and go to school and enjoy life with their family. So all of this is, it's hard work, but it's a ton of fun too. And let me just double click on the idea of people. And I want to emphasize, this is a people business that has to do with real estate. So everything I've just described, you're working with people, you're working with residents, you're working with contractors, and most importantly, you're working with ideally a very competent and motivated resident manager. I can talk a lot about, you know, capital markets or the location of the, the municipality where the property is located or something like that, or your lender. But at the end, of the end of the day, probably most important aspects is your resident manager. And I've been very, very fortunate to work with great, motivated resident managers. And any success I've experienced really is due to having great resident managers who are motivated, who care about the community, who go the extra mile. And I mean, just as an example, at my property in Nebraska, it snows, the wind blows. There are unfortunately no trees to block snow from blowing. So, you know, there's a big snowstorm and you wake up one morning, everybody's got to go to work and there are, you know, four foot snowdrifts outside your home. You can't get to work. So my resident manager in certain cases have has gotten to the park at 4 a.m., plowed the streets made sure, cleared everybody's driveways. So I just want to give a shout out to, I've been honored to work with really, really great people. And I just want to give them credit where credit is due because they've worked very, very hard. And, you know, it, it's been a, a pleasure and I've really enjoyed my my working relationship with those folks. No, that's excellent. That's excellent. Let me just back, back up to minerals versus uh, sure, sure. mobile home parks. So as a mineral owner, you know, unless you own a very large parcel or a large number of acres, you don't really have a lot of leverage with a an operator to attract. Maybe if you're Blackstone Minerals or something like that, you can call up an operator and say, hey, you know, let's work on this together. But really, at the end of the day, for, for guys like me, you don't have any control. With a mobile home park, as I've just described, you have a lot of levers to pull to improve the value of the property. So, you know, in theory, the economy could be slow or interest rates could be heading in the wrong direction, but you can still improve the value of the property by fixing potholes, as I've mentioned, hiring a great resident manager, fixing up people's homes. And that is a really fun and rewarding process. But I also want to emphasize it takes a lot longer than you would think. So the most recent properties I bought were in 2020 and 2021. So all those properties, you know, I'm, I'm maybe 60% of the way through the renovation. I mean, I've still got a lot of lot to do. We've accomplished a lot. 
But, you know, just for example, one property I bought two years ago, I'm doing major projects on it starting this month because the weather just warmed up. But it's it's super rewarding, but it also just takes a long time because, you know, you're spending a lot of money. You've got a lot of stuff to do. So, yeah, it's de- it's definitely an operating business. And then let me just finally talk about minerals as an investment, particularly kind of the cash flow profile versus mobile home parks. Let's assume, Tim, you're the owner of a uh, of minerals in a um, there's a shale well drilled and the, the well was drilled you know, right in the middle of 2023, you're going to get a lot of cash flow up front, then it's going to decrease dramatically. And, you know, over time, it's going to maybe still get a small amount of cash flow, but over the next four years, it's going to decrease dramatically. One of the reasons a mobile home park might be attractive is that when you buy a mobile home park, it's safe to assume you're just going to be reinvesting all of your cash flow back into the property, you know, buying homes, fixing potholes, fixing sewer leaks, all that sort of stuff, trimming trees. But eventually, let's call it in three years, you're going to kind of complete your to-do list and the thing's going to cash, the asset's going to cash flow really well. And maybe at that point, you get a new loan so you can pull some of your initial investment out or you can just kind of clip coupons. So I think for a variety of reasons, if you're a mineral owner, I think mobile home parks could be a really good, interesting investment. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has been a leading ground game broker for minerals and non-op deals, closing over 120 transactions across the Permian, Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken, Powder River Basin, DJ, and Eagleford. With deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million and 1.5 NRAs upwards of 3,500 NRAs, the Texas Mineral Company can be flexible on where and how they can source your deal flow. For more information on how your team can work with the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Scaling up your portfolio while minimizing GNA is the name of the game in the minerals and non-op space. Whether you're a brand new fund, an established team who's growing quickly, or a fully developed portfolio in harvest mode, Opportune's back office outsourcing team can help. Stop worrying about all the headaches that come along with day-to-day accounting and back office operations and contact Opportune today. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit 
www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Yeah, and, and you mentioned earlier that it offers a, a hedge on inflation a bit, which is another attribute of minerals. So there's some some parallels there. And I, I don't want to dig too much into this, but unfortunately, there have been instances in the in the mobile home park industry where there's been a mobile home park that's in a good location, let's call it Des Moines, Iowa, and it's been owned by the same family, and they have not necessarily maintained that property very well. And it comes time, and with it, they've kept their rents really low, which is good, a good thing until it isn't because they decide, okay, you know, I'm 80 or 90 years old, I need to sell this thing. And somebody uh, comes along and buys it, the new owner has no choice but to dramatically raise the rents because uh, A, you can't service the debt without higher cash flow. And then B, in most instances, that mobile home park requires very expensive capitalized expenditure repairs, roads, water lines, tearing out junky well, I mean, junky homes, replacing them with new homes. So people may be aware, read about stories from time to time in their local newspaper about a mobile home park that you know, somebody it's been owned by the same family forever. And then somebody comes along and buys it and has to raise the rents. I say that as something that I think as a mobile home park owner, you have to be sensitive about, I guess. But back to the topic of rent increases, I, my philosophy is to give value to get value. So when I buy a mobile home park, I try and clean up as much as possible in a shorter period of time, you know, trimming trees, hauling out trash, fixing up people's homes, fixing potholes and stuff like that. And then once the tenants realize, okay, this community I live in is no longer forgotten about and they start taking better care of the homes and they recognize, okay, I've got an owner who cares, then I would raise the rents. And I do it in bite-sized chunks so that people can adjust their budgets accordingly. Fantastic. Would you mind humoring us a hypothetical example in acquisition and, and all the steps you sent this over to me and, and some bullet points. I think walking through that might be helpful, you know, talking about different numbers and would you mind, mind doing that for us? Of course. Okay. So let's say you've identified Grand Rapids, Michigan as an attractive market. Um, it's not somewhere I've been, not somewhere I'm familiar with. I've just kind of pulled that out of the hat and you notice that there's a mobile home park there in Grand Rapids with 80 lots listed for sale with a local broker. So you call the broker and you get the backstory that um, it's owned by an older individual. He built the park in the 70s and he's ready to sell. And because the owner wants to cash out and retire, your only choice is to go to a, a bank for financing. Under ideal circumstances, the owner owns the property free and clear and says, hey, you know, all seller carry, but in this instance, that's not the case. So again, you've got, you're able to get this property tied up and you go to your local bank for financing. So you're paying $2.8 million and a local bank will give you a 70% loan to value loan. So I would, let's talk about some of the moving parts there. You've got, when you buy the property, obviously you've got to have a sufficient down payment to 30%. What is that? So about $900,000 to buy the park. Once you own the property, you need a budget, a CapEx budget. So I would assume just typically 
you're going to spend an additional $200,000, maybe $150,000 on various CapEx items around the park. That could be salary, that could be cleanup, that could be trimming trees, that could be major road repairs. You might have to replace some water lines. But I would assume, typically in my experience, if you buy a property for $2.83 million, you want to set aside 7 or 10% for CapEx. But just going back to like your basic underwriting, when you buy the property, the owner, unfortunately, the, the previous owner, unfortunately, is friendly with the tenants. He doesn't raise the rents, even though Grand Rapids, you know, is a good, strong, diverse economy. The, the rents are $250 per month. So that would be kind of like in mineral terms, a an old well in the core of the Permian that's like held by production going back to the 50s or 60s or something like that. But in the case of, you know, the minerals in the Permian, I, as far as I understand, you can't really do anything about that. In the case of a mobile home park in a good location, you've got some levers to increase your cash flow over time. So your business plan over, you know, the first 24 months would be, you know, you obviously want to address any health and safety issues. This is just a personal quirk of mine. I'm very paranoid about trees. So I spent a lot of money trimming back trees, trying to eliminate any hazard of trees falling on people, things like that. You obviously want to address things like aggressive breeds of dogs, which is something we have to deal with. I had a, my insurance policy specifically prohibits certain types of dogs unless they're, um, uh, what do you call an emotional comfort animal. But two years ago, I had a resident who snuck in a Rottweiler. The Rottweiler bit a sheriff's deputy. So that was not fun. So those are the type of things you're going to have to do. Next up, you want to address things like roads, potholes, cleaning up junk. And all this is to say, Tim, none of this is rocket science, but it it requires discipline. It requires a plan and uh, it requires, you know, good project man- management skills. And then you want to make sure you're, you're working with great people. So let's say you bought this property August of 2023. It's now August of 2024. You and you've made significant progress. Maybe the property isn't perfect but it's a lot cleaner. There's no health and safety issues, anything like that. Then you can raise the rents. And then you might look at things like, okay, here's this 1970s mobile home that's been in the property for a long time. It's really worthless. And the the previous owner of the home has abandoned that. I'm going to tear that home out and I'm going to order some homes from Warren Buffett's company, Clayton. So you order those homes and they show up Three months later, you set those up. And that's when things get really exciting because it's almost like a game of Monopoly or seeing, you know, new wells show up on open minerals. It just starts looking much more attractive. So when you bring in new mobile homes to a park, they look really good. Typically, you know, the resident profile might be a little higher income. So it just over time, it starts transforming the park. In terms of the cash flow, in terms of the resident profile, and just kind of the aesthetics of the park. So that's that's when, you know, after 12 or 24 months, things get really fun. And then assuming you're in a stable interest rate environment, unlike today, 
after 24 months, you could call up a Fannie or Freddie lender. These are government-sponsored entities that lend. One of their missions mission is to lend money on affordable housing. And if you meet their criteria, they will make you a loan on on a mobile home park that's non-recourse that has 10-year fixed rate financing and is 30-year amortization. And that's kind of typically the end game. So why do you need to wait you know, 24 months in operation? Is it showing history of operating the property for X amount of months of criteria or? that That's just been my business plan. So I'm just assuming for the sake of argument that when you bought the property this year, it doesn't necessarily meet the criteria of any of those lenders. So your only choice would be a local bank. You know, your mileage may vary. There's a lot of factors to consider, but, you know, typically, well, let me just back up. These lenders, specifically, I'm speaking about Fannie and Freddie, they lend money on very attractive terms, but the property and the borrower has to fit in their box. So they want to see somebody, a borrower who's, you know, had several years of experience owning this asset type. And then when they drive through the property, they want to see certain physical attributes as far as um, the quality of the roads, the quality of the homes, offsite parking, kind of certain infrastructure. And I'm just assuming that when you buy the property, just in our example, day one, you don't meet those criteria, but after a couple of years, Either you as a borrower, you've got sufficient um, experience, the cash flows good enough, and then the physical attributes, you know, check Fannie's boxes. But at the end of the day, that's a very attractive exit strategy. And the good news is you get a higher loan amount because the value of the property is increased. You're able to pull out your equity, and then you've got a non-recourse loan and long-term fixed rate financing. So it just, that's one of the aspects that makes it very interesting. And, you know, you still own the property. So it's it's great. Yeah, you know, one of the things here we have down is to just talk about certain things you look for as an investor in a property. I think in minerals, a lot of times you want to have your end buyer in mind and your exit optionality in mind. And you just talk about Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae being good options to kind of upgrade the value and take take your cash out of the investment. So is the answer to that really what they typically like? And that it sounds like good, clean infrastructure and different things like like that? Or are you looking for something that's a little broken down? Maybe the the entry cost is better and there's a bit of an arbitrage there. What, what, what's been your personal play? I know if it's like minerals, there's a million ways to skin the cat. But how have you gone about these projects? What do you like and what do you try to avoid? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the answer really depends upon, you know, your personal preference. I have my set of personal preferences. Let me share my list. And I would emphasize, Tim, that there's people who do the exact opposite and have been incredibly successful. But this is just my personal preference. So let's start with the Real estate is all about location, location, location. In minerals terms, there are certain states that are super friendly to the oil and gas industry. I think we can all name them. And there are certain states that are much more friendly. I want to obviously own in, and in the same way, there are states that are generally 
more friendly to landlords, have reasonable protections for residents, but also have reasonable protections for landlords. I want to own in those states. And then out of curiosity, I mean, non-friendly oil and gas states, right? It would be imposing taxes and just punitive restrictions on development of oil and gas. What what would be the analogous scenario for a non-friendly state in this asset class? Just just curious, because I, I can't. Yeah, really, of course. What what does that look like? Yeah. So for example, in my home state, California, there is a a regulatory body called Housing and Community Development that regulates the operation and ownership of mobile home parks. And so housing and community development, in my opinion, makes it fairly difficult to operate mobile home parks in the state. So I don't own mobile home parks, but from what I've heard and you know, take what I'm gonna share with a grain of salt, if you own mobile home parks in the state of California, you want to have an attorney on speed dial. And just as a example, in our state, there's something called failure to maintain lawsuits. So, Tim, if you're a resident in a mobile home park in the state of California, and there's basically anything, any minor failure on the part of the property owner to maintain the property, the common areas of the property, you can sue the landlord and you're likely to win. And again, I've just heard stories like this over the years, and this is why I've avoided our state. But if, let's call it the, uh, the roads need to be resurfaced or there's a light bulb out or something like that, you as a resident of a mobile home park in the state of California can make the landlord's life difficult and be very litigious. So that's a, that kind of scared me off, but you know, there are people in the state of California who've done incredibly well back on the East coast. Unfortunately, they paid, they passed statewide rent control in the state of New York. And so if you're a mobile home park owner and you've got a old tired mobile home park and you've got to spend a lot of money, your business plan is to improve the property operation of the park, improve the infrastructure, clean up trees. If you, you're you spending a lot of money and your expenses go up and your expenses are probably even rising and you can't raise the rents, that makes it difficult. Yeah, that's fair. It's so, like, you know, places like Argentina, they control oil and gas pricing and it always ends up, you know, being in negative, right? When the, the markets can't flow like they're supposed to. There's just lack of an incentivization and, and all that too. And what... Well, I, I don't know New York parks. I don't want to speak about them, but just hypothetically, you would see a deterioration in quality because why would you reinvest, right? That is correct. And I want to be clear, Tim, I'm very strongly in favor of protections specifically for residents of mobile home parks. I'm strongly in favor. I And if I were, well, I'm, I'm not involved politically, but I I think tenants need to have good protection to protect the value of their homes. It's not fair to the residents for their rents to double overnight or something like that. Um, These are hardworking people and they deserve good quality, affordable housing. But at the same time, there needs to be protections for landlords who are doing a good job and who are trying to improve the quality of the asset and improve the living environment for the residents. So all that is to say, 
these states I've just mentioned, these are states I, I avoid. So the states I've settled on are all located in the upper Midwest, Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Generally, pretty reasonable states to work with. They have pretty good laws that are have good protections for residents, but have good rule of law for property owners as well. So those are states I've looked at. Next, you need to kind of drill down to the municipality. That would be akin to saying, well, and this is just from personal experience, I own minerals in the DJ Basin, Weld County, you know, it's a sparsely populated county. It's reasonably friendly to drill in. If I were to go to um, another county in the DJ closer to Denver, you know, the regulatory environment, because it's much more densely populated, you know, you're talking about drilling an oil well next to an elementary school, Sure. the regulatory environment might be more difficult. So fast forward to the towns I look in. Now you get into small town politics. I won't go too into the details, but I would just say in that town, there's typically like the mayor or the um, housing officer. You want to just have a heart to heart conversation with that person and say, hey, look, this mobile home park down the street doesn't have the best reputation. It's kind of been a little neglected and overlooked. Over the next few years, if I buy it, I'm going to clean that place up. And I just want to make sure if I do what I say I'm going to do, will you work with me and have a reasonable, you know, can we have a copacetic relationship? And when you ask that question, you really want to hear, listen to what that person says. And most of the time in my experience, the elected official or the housing official gets what you're trying to do. You're trying to improve the quality of that community and improve the quality of the city. And they're very cooperative. And I would just say, if that person said something along the lines of, you know, Tim, um, no, that that mobile home park there, that should be, you know, I'm going to, I want to sell it to my buddy, the housing developer, or, you know, I want to put a new mall there or whatever like that. I'd probably say thanks, but no thanks and walk away. So that's, you know, I don't want to dig too into the details, but that's just something to be aware of. And then when you look at that, let's say you've identified a town, you want the things I look for are, I look for a Walmart. Walmart typically doesn't own open a store unless they feel like the town's got a future and it's got sufficient economic activity to, you know, warrant activity. I mean, there have been real estate, this isn't necessarily my my only criteria, but there are real estate investors who say Walmart's going to open a town in this, I'm sorry, open up a, a superstore in this new town. Therefore, I'm going to go buy apartment buildings there, you know, I'm going to build a subdivision or something like that. I mean, Walmart does their homework on demographics. So if there's a Walmart, there's a decent sized hospital, if there's some sort of technical school or a university, those are all great. And then you want to look at things like proximity to an airport, proximity to interstate highway system. All of those things are are super helpful. That, that's interesting because these are the types of indicators you want to look for permits. You want to look for pad development and roads being built out for trucks on the sand side. These are all things in the mineral space, you look as indicators and, and these are in your world are, are the same. So th this is really helpful. Absolutely. And then the other thing is, 
with with oil and gas, but you, you have to think about takeaway capacity, pipelines and things like that. And the equivalent, you know, an airport, interstate highways, things like that. And oh, and the other thing is, at least in the Midwest, railroads are huge. If you own a property where there's a large rail yard or even railroads go through, that's always a good sign, A, because if there's a local company or a local business, it allows products to be transported into and out of that town. And then it just so happens railroads pay really, really well. So if there's workers from the railroad who reside in that town, that's a, I mean, they're, they're very well paid. So you, you bear that in mind because, you know, it's, it's just a good economic driver. And then let me mention a couple other things. Interestingly, since we're, we have all backgrounds in oil and gas, I would personally not invest in a mobile park in a oil and gas area. And I've, I've looked at that or looked at apartment buildings and, you know, the Permian or something like that. And this is just me. I want to sleep well at night. And I've been to the Permian when things are hot. And, you know, you can do incredibly yeah. well. The boom bust cycles. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just literally as we speak, Tim, two years ago, I was in Williston, North Dakota, buying a bunch of mobile home mobile homes that had been owned by an oil guy who housed all his workers. And I mean, this guy was incredibly wealthy, but you know, he no longer needed these mobile homes. And I put them on a truck and I shipped them to South Dakota. So that's just my personal preference. And again, there've been people who've done very well in those areas. It's just probably not my cup of tea. And then the other thing to consider is drilling down to the individual asset. Mobile home parks, I've kind of alluded to, are sometimes the ugly stepchild of commercial real estate. And within cities, sometimes they've got a a piece of land that like the city planner, the planning and zoning people are like, well, what do we do with this thing? And maybe it's in a flood zone or it's not in the best location. Let's put a mobile home park there. (laughs) So oftentimes mobile home parks are located in flood zones. And obviously, you know, you see that in the news anytime there's some sort of natural disaster. Unfortunately, mobile home parks get flooded or hit with severe damage, storm damage. And, you know, that's that's definitely a risk. So I'm not saying that's a automatic red light. That's just something to be aware of. I own a mobile home park that's partially in a flood zone. Um, hasn't been an issue, but it's just a risk you have to be aware of. Yes, yeah, certainly with. You know, some of the, the I, I live in Houston, right? So with, with some of the flooding we've seen, something not to brush off, it has to be looked at. And, and it's interesting you say that. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the flooding that happens are in lower income areas in Houston. I'm not sure if any of those are, you know, mobile home parks, but it makes sense from a, I guess, the real estate development standpoint, if they're going to put lower income housing for financial reasons, they're selecting these these areas, which is unfortunate, but um, yeah, it is unfortunate. Okay. So let's talk about, this is my preference for an individual asset. So we've kind of talked about big picture down to the municipality, city, county. We've talked about the location within that municipality. Let's talk about for the sake of argument, if I were standing shoulder to shoulder in a mobile home park with a mineral owner who wanted to look at a mobile home park, let me begin by saying, talking about mobile home parks as an investment. 
if you and I are standing in a mobile home park and we've got a home on a lot, that home, as I mentioned, is likely to stay in that mobile home park for 10 or 20 years. God forbid something happens or you know, there's a fire or it just kind of becomes obsolete. Other than that, that mobile home is going to stay in that home for a long time. The owner of that home, you know, they may have an additional child. They may buy a home. They may get a job transfer, whatever. They go through a life change. But that mobile home is going to stay in that lot and it's going to continue to pay rent. So that makes it a very attractive investment. But if we walk 30 feet next door, there's a vacant lot. And I want to emphasize the difficulty or the hair loss, as you'll see, involved in getting that a mobile home onto that lot. In my experience being in this business almost nine years, I've had maybe four or five people want to move a uh, under their own, call me up and say, hey, got this home, I'd like to move it into your park. That rarely happens. What typically you need to do is an older mobile home out on some farmer's land, bring it into the park. Order homes from factories, which is expensive and time-consuming, bring it into the park or do what I did. I essentially found a mobile home park in the Bakken that was closing. They no longer needed. I spent all of 2021 moving homes from 800 miles from North Dakota to South Dakota. All that is to say, it's, it's been a super rewarding experience, but it's just a lot of work. And now that those homes are set up in the park, you know, the value of the park has gone up and the park looks nicer and all that stuff. But okay, so that's just kind of simple background. So for the again, Tim and Peter are standing in a mobile home park. What I would encourage you is you want to park with high occupancy. So if we're the park is a hundred lots, you want to see 90 homes on those lots. And you want to see 90 homes that are generally have a good like 10-year life span left in them. And by that, I mean, I know you're a very tall individual. I wouldn't want you living. There are homes that are like 12 feet wide or 13 feet wide. That's that's as close to obsolete as, you know, as you're going to get. You want a home that's like 16 feet wide, 75, 80 feet long. Maybe it needs paint, maybe the skirting, you know, around the base of the home is a little deteriorated. There's some junk in the yard, but you know, it's a home that's decent. And if you take good care of it, it's, it's going to stay in that park for the next 20, you know, 10 or 20 years. So that's the first thing I would look at. And then the other things are the infrastructure. So as the owner of the property, you're responsible for providing electricity, gas, water, sewer, and trash to your residents. Most importantly, I, I would say your water lines and your sewer lines are probably the most important. And the reason, and or, I mean, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, but I would say, in my experience, the things that have been the biggest headache, water and sewer lines. The reason is a lot of these parks are built 40 or 50 years ago. They were built out of, you know, cast iron. The water lines are cast iron, which underground after... 34 years, they pop a lot of leaks. All that either at the end of the day, fast forward to today, you've got really low water pressure or you've just got a lot of pinhole leaks 
And it's really just a crazy maker trying to find, identify leaks, which are really expensive. So at the end of the day, you just want to make sure you've got good infrastructure or in your underwriting, if you identify, hey, this is a potential problem, you need to assume, yeah, this is something I'm going to have to address. And it's it's not a cheap repair. I'm doing water lines on a property in South Dakota. And, you know, it's it's expensive and time consuming, but, you know, just I kind of knew that. So, so that's your water lines. The other thing to be aware of is we're in rural America. A lot of rural America operates on a septic system or some variety of that. And I've owned a mobile home park on a septic system. It hasn't been a huge deal, but for the sake of argument, you know, if I were advising you, Tim, I would, if there's a mobile home park on a septic system or something like that, what are called private utilities, I would I would probably shy away from that until you had several years of experience. It's just, it's, it's a big risk and there's not really any upside to doing it. So I would just, I would just avoid that. Sure. It would be like saying, Hey, Tim, I've got this great, you know, these great minerals come drill well, but you've got to truck the oil to the local pipeline or something. I, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but it would, it would just be, would not be a, a good setup for you. Yeah, just any any type of extra risk where you're not getting rewarded for that financially, you you try to avoid that, right? Is the yeah, exactly. And then so then the the next thing, Tim, is I would advise you know get to the property early in the morning before people, the residents go to work. Just put on your Inspector Clouseau hat and just are people are they getting up? Are they going to work? See pride of ownership. Do you see people who planted gardens? who are working on their homes, things like that. And then you can talk to folks here. You can just knock on doors and talk to the residents and see, you know, what do they have to say? Do they, do they like living in their park? What are their concerns? And then return at night. And you return right when work gets out, see kind of, are people getting home from work? What's going on there? And the return come back on a Saturday night at like 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. and see what's going on. And I would just say, you might be pleasantly surprised. You know, maybe it's they're having a neighborhood barbecue. People are just hanging out, enjoying life. Or, you know, is there a legal activity? And just kind of pick up clues and be kind of a, a fly on the wall and see see what you see and notice, write down notes. Going back to... That first property I bought, as a bit of background, the main employer, as I mentioned, is Tyson Foods. The folks that work in that food processing plant come from all over the world. But what I noticed is they arrive, they work at Tyson, they live in the community, and they live in this mobile home park. They have a tremendous, on on average, Tim, these folks have a tremendous amount of pride in living in this town. And they have a tremendous amount of pride in living in this mobile home park. As you know, the Nebraska Huskers are like, you know, extremely popular in North Dakota. I'm sorry, in sorry, in Nebraska. Everybody, everybody, I don't care what country you're from, has a Nebraska Huskers belt buckle or a Nebraska Huskers sticker on their car. They don't, maybe they don't even know who the Huskers are, but I mean, they're like really in people move and within a month, they think, I mean, they're just 
They pledged allegiance to Nebraska. They love that town. So, you know, you might all this, you might be pleasantly surprised and people really quickly assimilate and really love living in that town. Yeah. The small town mentality. And, you know, there's a lot of psychological studies around community building and how important that is for human beings in, in general. Right. And that's why religions were formed and you have all these different types of subgroups formed. So this seems like in a sense of an example of that for sure. Yes. And thanks for mentioning that. And let me just mention, we won't dive too deep into this, but let's talk about really rudimentary underwriting. And by that, I mean, let's just talk fourth grade math here. So let's go back to the example of that mobile home park in, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan. She so called the broker and he sends you a an investment package. So it's an 80 lot park for $2.8 million. So what is that? 30, let's call it $35,000 per lot. So at that, when you buy the property, the lot rents are $250. Let me just mention a simple rule of thumb that it's just it gives you the ability to really quickly say, okay, is this property, is this a quick pass or fail or pass or, you know, do I want to dig in more? And so going back to this property in in Grand Rapids, you know that your lot rents are $250 and you know that Grand Rapids is a good town and competing mobile home parks are charging $500 per month. They're very similar. They just, maybe they're a little cleaner, Maybe they're a little bit newer, but you realize, okay, if I fix up this property, maybe my lot rents could be $400, $450 eventually, not tomorrow, but in you know two or three years. So that's kind of your goal. And then you also recognize, okay, a, a decent two-bedroom apartment, you go on Craigslist or rent.com, it's $1,200. So that's kind of your market rent. So you just, it gives you an idea, okay, 250 is too low. And if you execute your business plan, you can raise your rents to $400, $450 over time. So oh, as a way to calculate the, if your seller is kind of even on the right planet, what you do is you take your future rent, let's call it $450, multiply it by 100. 450 times 100 is $45,000. How does $45,000 compare to the asking lot per rent. I mean, sorry, asking price per lot. Are you tracking with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these are quick multiples that are, you know, times Very quick is an industry standard. And if, if it's double, <laughs> the ask is double, probably not worth digging in type of thing. Yeah. If the ask is $100,000 per lot, no. If the ask is in this case, $35,000 per lot, yeah, might dig in further. And obviously there's, you know, a number of spreadsheets we can go in that are very simple. The the underwriting on a mobile park is very simple, but, you know, that's just a, a very simple way to calculate on the back of the envelope. Hey, does this, does this deal even make sense? Great. And you've mentioned there's some educational resources for folks to tap into if they want to learn more. Do you want to mention those? Yeah, of course. So the first is there's a mobile home park boot camp put together by the mobile home park store. Um, They used to do an in-person boot camp throughout the country, I think three or four times a year, but now it's on an online format and you can go onto the website, mobile home park store 
com, and they have a, a boot camp and you can sign up for it. I think it's $800 or something like that, but it provides a lot of really good educational material. And the other is this one I have more experience with. There's a web, a podcast called Mobile MHP IRL, Mobile Home Parks in Real Life. And they have a, I think, a weekly podcast, and they talk about a, vari- a wide variety of topics relating to the mobile home park industry, ranging from industry news, transactions, big picture, even things like operations, you know, replacing water lines, ordering new homes, HR issues, stuff like that. That's a great resource as well. And it'll give you like a very unvarnished picture of the industry. Great, great. And listen, this has been deep dive. This has been super interesting and helpful. I appreciate you sharing. You know, to, to kind of tie everything back to minerals, why don't you share a little bit? You called me, I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, called me early last year. You were interested in, in starting to invest into minerals. What was the motive of that? Was it a 1031 opportunity? Was it diversification? And how have you found it? Uh, how's it been? I, I believe you own some stuff in the DJ. What's the plans going forward, et cetera? I'll, I'll let you take it away and, and close out the episode. Sure. So first of all, again, Tim, thank you for the great content you put together relating to minerals and royalties. And as as you mentioned, I'm relative, extremely new to minerals, but in my limited experience, it's been fun so far. I was able to buy some minerals in the DJ and I'm looking to buy more on a much, much smaller scale than many of your other guests but I really like the DJ or I could kind of be like the scrap collector of stuff that, you know, larger funds pass on. But I've, I've really enjoyed being part of the industry. I attended NAPE this year. I went to NARO six months ago and I've, I've learned a great deal. And the, the genesis of this is at the end of 2021, I, I think I mentioned I'd spent a lot of time on projects, you know, moving mobile homes and fixing stuff. And I just wanted some diversification and I wanted an investment that wasn't, once you actually own it, isn't as capital or operationally intensive. And I'd been familiar with minerals. So long story short, I ended up buying some minerals in the DJ and been great so far. And I'm looking to buy more in a, in a cautious manner, I would emphasize. But um, it's been great. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. Well, excellent. Well, uh, on behalf of the minerals community, welcome. Glad to have you. It's always good to get new new capital in this space. It's a reason why this podcast was created. So it's good to see the original thesis playing out and great to see you a part of the community. So thank you for coming on. I know there was a lot of goodwill and coming on to just really share some notes on mobile home parks is a bit of a different episode, but for the same reasons you diversified into minerals, others may want to diversify into real estate. A lot of folks do 1031s, and this may be an interesting alternative. And I appreciate you just sharing your thoughts so they can dig in uh, and go down that rabbit hole if they, they choose to. So appreciate your time, sir, and coming on and best of luck the rest of the year. We look forward to hopefully seeing you in person soon. Cool. Hey, thank you, Tim. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments. 
nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.